You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. This morning, we continue in our parables series, and the sermon text this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, and we'll be reading when I get there. You follow along on the screen as I read verses 25 through 37. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. This is God's word. That's right. Please be seated. Good morning. It is so good to be with God's people. Uh, I was missing last week as, well, I wasn't missing. I knew where I was, but... um, uh, I was not here with you last week as we were enjoying some time as a family and with friends uh, in the Outer Banks. I highly recommend that if anybody hasn't tried it. Um, it can be refreshing, strengthening, encouraging. What's, what's up? Oh, wow. I know. Hi, I'm Chad, one of the pastors. One of the pastors here. I was getting there. It's in my notes. No, it's not. All right. Um, you think it's funny. It is usually. All right. Um, I have no idea who I am most of the time. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. I was, was read this morning. And you can turn there. We'll have some words on the screen if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible at all, want one. We've got some in the back. We'd love to put one in your hand before you leave here. Because God's Word carries power and strength in it. And we trust that as we open up God's Word, even this morning, to read it, that He can transform and change our hearts of stone to flesh. He just does miracles every day. And um, 
And we're in Luke 10, what is commonly known as the Good Samaritan. This actually, this week, we're continuing in a sermon series. We just started last week, Lance, uh, as, as we were out of town, so graciously kicked us off in uh, the prodigal son. I actually had three prodigals. If you haven't heard the sermon that Lance delivered last week, uh, I highly encourage that. The audio is up, and uh, where he challenged us to look at at uh, the, the three prodigals in the story and just to align ourselves in our heart to, to what God had to teach us in that and the real uh, abundance and the generosity and compassion of our Father, Heavenly Father. This week we're continuing in the study to, um, to the Good Samaritan and our, our, our parable uh, series is actually titled Parables of Jesus, The Secrets of the Kingdom. That's that subtitle that we put in there. And the reason we did that is because it came from Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 10 through 11. Um, in which we read this. The disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? Clearly, he's like, Jesus, why? Why are you talking in these stories that people are not really sure what's going on? Why is this happening? So Jesus answers, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. Now, it's not that Christ is trying to hide secrets. He has a very, very... uh, and he is brilliant beyond words, if you will. God's wisdom, he reveals to us uh, in the way and in the timing in which uh, he knows is best. And in this case, as he's speaking in his earthly ministry, Christ is, 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 says the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know. He specifically is telling us that in the parables, the secrets of the kingdom are, are, are found. And I think it's important for us to set the tone or the understanding as we look at this parable, because today we're opening up the Luke 10, 25 through 37, and possibly what is one of Jesus's most familiar parables in and outside of the church, okay? I didn't do any extensive research on that. Most people, you say, if you talk about someone being a good, good Samaritan within America, they're going to know what you're talking about. They're going to, they have some kind of a reference point to a really good person above and beyond what is normal and standard and accepted, but at least many people are familiar with the specific content of the parable from 30 to 35. Today, I want us to speak about that parable, but to set the context for the parable. Because the understanding that people often have when they look at this, even though many of us are familiar with this parable, the context matters on how we understand and apply the story in our life. It matters because we could actually walk away, and many people do, with the wrong conclusion and exactly the opposite understanding of what Christ is speaking of when he speaks to his people in parables. See, um, some of you may be able to relate to this if you have some specific background. Military is, 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 is one that, that this is probably prominent in because I come from a, mil- a small undergrad military school. Uh, people who are in the medical field, Zach, you're checking two boxes here. You're with us this morning. Uh, I know in very like niche industries or, 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 or environments where you have your own lingo, right? Am I familiar? Like, I could come in today and tell you, and this, if I was with my buddies from uh, school, we might talk about a time when uh, I, w- I would be talking to my BRs about the time that one of my rats got PT when the OD caught him running the block after SRC, and they would know exactly what I meant. And I only illustrate this because unless you get the context of what I'm talking about, or maybe you have the background of the space, you're like, what is going on? There's a rat involved. Um, He ran a block. I don't know what that is. Okay. 
I'm not going to tell you the definition. Talk to me after I'll explain what that was. But the point being, God's not, that Christ is talking in code, but he's speaking to a very specific people in a specific time with a specific message. And it's important as good students of the Bible that we look at what Christ wants to reveal and we hear him and we trust the Spirit to teach us in it. So let's look at what, how Jesus uh, opens up the word. Uh, theologian Don Carson quotes his father, and this is a, a, a well-known saying, as a text without the context provides a pretext for a proof text. Oh, what that means is if you don't look in the context and the totality of God's word, we can begin to justify all kinds of sayings as people do. And in this good, good uh, Samaritan story, some people read this story, this parable, as saying, go and do better at serving your neighbor. You know what? Cross the street, help somebody in need. Yes, do that. Not what Christ is trying to tell us. That's not the question he's answering. I've heard some people explain this parable as simply evangelistic in terms of this is what the law requires you to do. There's no way you can be as good as this Samaritan. You can't do it, so you need Jesus. Yes. Yes, without Christ in us, we cannot live like the Good Samaritan. But that's reductive. There's something more that he wants his disciples to hear. And there's been a lot of allegorizing with this parable. If you've ever been in church history and looked at the way the, the church fathers handled this text, a uh, matter of fact, Augustine, early church father, um, he takes the wounded man as Adam, the Samaritan as Christ, the innkeeper in the story as Paul. He's got all kinds of characters at play. And he probably has some truth. He definitely does. I trust Augustine's teaching in those scenarios. He has some truth he's conveying, okay? But I think that's just overcomplicating it. The parable here is bringing into view the kind of radical transformation that God brings to the heart of his people. It's a transformation. We talked about, ex we've been in Exodus, okay? We've been in Exodus. When we, when we spoke through Exodus, we talked about the fact that God's people were in bondage in Egypt to Pharaoh, right? In bondage to that kind of slave master. The kingdom here of darkness. And what did God do with his people? He rescued them from that. And he took them across the Red Sea. And he led them to the promised land. And they became his people and he became their God. In this context... Christ is actually coming to officially launch, the, to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. He is ultimately, the kingdom of darkness has been ruling and reigning, and he's coming to conquer and rescue his people. And this is the kind of transformation that yanks you out of captivity to thinking like the kingdom of darkness and to living like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Living like a true kingdom neighbor. In order to help this questioner see his lack of love and compassion as a neighbor and ultimately expose that he didn't truly know or love God. When you know Jesus and his compassion toward you, you display Jesus and his compassion to others. When you know Jesus and his compassion towards you, you display Jesus and his compassion towards others. Paul summed it up this way. In Galatians 5.14, he said, For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Matter of fact, well, we'll get into this in a moment. There's others who have summarized it the same way that we can see the love of God in the way you love people. And I don't think it's just me, but over the last several years, it has been evidently hard, even within people that profess Christ's name, to demonstrate love and compassion for those not like them. And I don't, I'm not even putting a definition on what that is. It could be ethnically, it could be belief, it could be political. Those not like them. And Jesus rips that apart. So let's look at the context first before we get moving into the actual par- parable. In chapters 9 through 19, Luke actually starts in on what's known as the travel narrative, where Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to Jerusalem, which is the cross. And on the way to Jerusalem, he is constantly speaking of the kingdom of heaven, that it is near. He sends out the 72 to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. He tells people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is on the way to put the final death blow in the kingdom of darkness and start to spread the conquest of God's kingdom on earth. And he is making it clear all the way through, traveling 9 through 19. I'm not going to point out every one of them, but you can see him over and over again, calling this out for his people, the kingdom of God is near. And then in chapter uh, 9, verses 51 through 56, we see that there's actually rejection by the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are significant people that we're going to talk a little bit more about later. But what you need to know about them is that Israelites, Jewish people, pure Jewish people, did not like them. And that's an understatement. Okay? Jesus is ministering to them, and they reject him and push him away. So much so that John, James and John, their brothers, referred to as sons of thunder. They got a little bit of, a little bit of feist in them. They're like, you know what, Jesus? We're going to call down... We're going to call down fire on the Samaritans for you. Jesus is like, whoa. He actually rebukes them. No, don't. This is not the right response, James and John. I, maybe you have good intention here, but we're not looking. This is not, we're not scorched earth. Okay? So we see the rejection of the Samaritans in 951 through 56. We see in the return of the 72 disciples, verses 17 through 10 of chapter 10, It says the disciples returned with joy. What they did, Jesus sent out 72 disciples. He said, go out into all the countries and towns around and proclaim the kingdom of God is near. Go into that town, and when they bring you in, it's also synonymous, so I can clear this up. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is Christ uses interchangeable. He probably says kingdom of heaven at times uh, in this text. But they go into those towns, and when they return from their evangelistic mission that he sent them on, They come back, return with joy, saying that even the demons submit to me. Jesus, this is awesome. We're like, listen, in Jesus' name, get out of this person. And the demons fled because they're talking in Christ's name. But the interesting thing is the response that God gives in that context. And I'm going to read that specifically from 17 through 20. He says to the 72, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Okay, listen, we've seen him fall. I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. It's his authority, not theirs. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. They were celebrating and rejoicing, but Christ wanted them to rejoice for the right reasons and the right motivations. And then finally, in 10, 21 through 24, 
Jesus begins a prayer, and he begins to rejoice himself in the Spirit, where he says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Again, the secrets of the kingdom. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is, son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Verse 23, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see, but they didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. He is praising God that he's revealing these truths to the little, like these little children, he calls them. It's you and me. If you're, if you're a follower of God, little children. No one knows the Father unless the Son reveals him. The disciples were able to see and hear the truth of the kingdom. And that's my prayer this morning. That as we open up this text, we'd hear and see the truth of the kingdom. How about I pray, and then we're going to get into the story of the Good Samaritan. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit be with us in full power, God, that you would strengthen us in our inner being, that you would fill us, and you would give us all wisdom as we open up this parable, that we wouldn't see with the eyes of men, uh, but God, we would see through your eyes and understand, and Lord, our hearts be changed and transformed from one degree of glory to the next, that we become more like Christ. And God, I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. So as we look at the story itself, it actually is in chapter 10. It's a relatively short passage of 25, um, verse 25 through there at the end of 37. Uh, and we're going to read this through uh, in pieces. Nate read out the entire text of it, but I want to look at four, three elements, actually, three movements, if you will, elements of the story in this passage that I want to look at specifically that Jesus is speaking towards. And the first one is the dishonesty of the law expert. Okay, the dishonesty of the law expert. He says this, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He asked a dishonest question. How do I know he asked a dishonest question? Well, the people in the crowd might not have been apparent to them, but we have God's word, and we have it inspired to tell us the reason he stood up to ask this question was what? To test him. He stood up to test him. Now, my first two years of college, I taught high school physics. I don't know if you're familiar with that. My first two years out of college, right? I have a very diverse background. We'll talk about it later. I taught high school. Preaching is not much different from teaching high schoolers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> sort of. But uh, I taught high school physics. You might have heard the saying that there are no, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Maybe you heard that in your life. Maybe a teacher gave you that wisdom, right? Okay. I actually changed that when I was talking with high schoolers. I told them... Um, I really did. So uh, when you look at uh, <laughs> high school students are always trying to test the teacher. They're always trying to, they're trying to, they're trying to get a laugh. They're trying to mess with people. They're trying to distract people. So I changed it around. I said, guys, you've heard about this, no dumb questions. There are no honest questions that are dumb questions. How about that? How about that? If you have an honest question, ask it. But if you're just trying to mess with the class and get them riled up, if you're trying to do something, try to show how dumb I am, Okay, because that, that wouldn't be hard. You can stump me. But in this case, G Jesus is, he is attempting to stump him by saying, what must I do to, to, do to uh, inherit eternal life? He's asking with the wrong priorities to test Christ. He's got this new teacher in town who's a popular teacher, right? This guy right here probably has a following of sorts, or maybe he's been trying to get his name out there, get a book deal. I don't know. 
But a new teacher, this guy's showing up, and he's got a crowd. So he's like, ha, I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to ask him a hard question. And he puts him to test, trying to demonstrate his own wisdom, trying to elevate himself in front of the crowd. And what's the question he asks? He says, he says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's Jesus' response? Well, he returns the question to him. Brilliant. He says, what's written in the law? What is this, what, what do you see, how do you read it? How do you read it? Well, this, this is a baited question, if you will, because the lawyer's not going to miss the opportunity to show how smart he is. He's like, oh, I, I know this. Jesus knew his motivations, returned the question to him, and demonstrated at the same time he's a friend of the law. I'm not trying to overturn these things. In Matthew 5, 17, he tells us, don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So, man, I'm not teaching anything new. What's the law say to you? And what does the lawyer respond? He gives the greatest commandment. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer says, I know the answer to this. His answer comes from two passages in the Old Testament, and they're familiar with most first century Jews. They're familiar to the crowd. Jesus uses this answer over and over again. A portion of this comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It's known as the Shema. It would have been repeated over and over again. Matter of fact, students of the law would have said it in the morning before they started their day, and they would have said it at night before they went to bed. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It is the monotheistic highest power, most high God message and, and, and statement of the Bible. That Israel says, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, and love him with everything you have. If there's only one God, he's due all the devotion. Okay? And then the second part he gets from Leviticus 19, 18, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the answer that Jesus gives on the regular. He gets quizzed on this. Hey, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? He says, you know, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He would repeat this. Good teachers, great teachers often repeated themselves. They often repeat themselves today. Great teachers often repeat themselves. Great teachers often repeat themselves. Great, no. All right, so... The lawyer answered his own question correctly, correctly, and how did Jesus respond? He says, you got it. Go do that. Actually, this is kind of hard, right? I mean, he, he caught him in the middle. He said, I gave the right answer, and now Jesus turns around and says, okay, go do it. Now, this might seem contradictory if we talk about grace and God's grace, and we're not saved by our work, we're saved by grace, but is he really wrong? He's not wrong. He's not lying. If you can manage to perfectly fulfill the law, you don't need Jesus. Go do it. R.C. Sproul was quoted as saying this, We are all justified by works. They just aren't our works. Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf, but in this case, the lawyer says, I don't need him. I don't need anybody else. I know the answer. And Jesus meets the lawyer exactly where he is. If you believe yourself righteous enough on your own, go and fulfill the law. Now, the Pharisees like to be seen. The Pharisees like the best seats. 
The Pharisees liked to feel justified by how others saw them, and they loved it, the appearance of righteousness. But Jesus says that you search the entirety of scriptures, you know them, but you missed me. The law points us to our need for a savior, not in our ability to fulfill it ourselves. Our need for Christ. And now if this lawyer had actually seen his need and seen himself rightly before God at this point, he would have responded like the tax collector does in Luke 18, where the parable says that he beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me. But instead, the lawyer comes back again, like an impetuous child that won't stop questioning. He says, but wanting to justify himself, again, we see his heart motivation. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who do you define that? This is not a new question. He didn't bring up a new idea. Might strike you, this is a debated topic at the time, and probably rightly divided. It's, it's debated even in the hearts of people in here or outside in the world. Who does this apply to, Jesus? The lawyer wasn't going to be had by this teacher. He wanted further debate. He wanted to justify himself. He was being dishonest with himself. This wasn't a play at salvation. He wanted to save face. There are likely people in the crowd that knew how this guy treated other people. And he's like, whoa, 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 hold on. Let's clarify this, Jesus, so everybody knows I'm so good. The lawyer had the wrong priorities, and he was even more concerned with his outward religious appearance. And he wanted to justify himself before the people. Remember Jesus' warning to the, to, the, uh, to the disciples when they came back on what they should rejoice in? Don't rejoice that the demons listen to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. So his desire for justification is evident in his question because he says this, who is my neighbor, Jesus? He skipped right over the love of the Lord your God part. Do you know, that's significant. It's significant because it's scary how each one of us can learn the right way to live, the right words to say, the right actions to take, and our love for God might be well faked in front of other people. You can put on a facade and have people convinced that you're doing good. And what he has done is he is happy with the fact that everybody else thinks he's righteous. But what is significant here is that the way he treats other people truly reveals his heart. Mercy and compassion that these Pharisees where Christ said they look good on the outside, but they're whitewashed tombs. Inside, they have dead men bones. It's possible to perform all these expected religion, but brothers and sisters, God hates empty worship. God hates hands lifted up and praise to him when the heart is not his. Isaiah 1.13 says, Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and the callings of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand it. I can't stand iniquity with a festival. Micah 6, 6-8, What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offering of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Act justly, 
love, faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. And these what, this is what he lacked. And, and, and Aaron has already spoken to this. Everyone here is not ignorant of this. I could and you could name countless public figures who would be upheld as religious figures or spiritual men, spiritual women who have fallen when the exposure came, the light was shined on what their real life, their real heart was like. They could live it right in front of everybody else and fool a lot of people. Don't fall into this snare. Don't walk out of here satisfied that we think you're holy. Don't be happy that we think you're just doing the right thing, that you're making it on Sunday morning, that you come to the Tuesday night groups, that you go out and we pray, that you pray for people, you give your best intention, that you're walking the line of satisfying spiritual recommendations, the checklist that you think we have for your life, when in truth, God wants your heart. So what is it that Paul, that God points out is the distinction of a kingdom neighbor? Well, he says it's not about who's my neighbor. Jesus wanted to show him what it's like to actually be a neighbor. And he wanted to blow up this category. He wanted to blow up our categories. Let's look at how Jesus responds. He says, look, Jesus took up the question from the man. And he gave him this story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The path, the path going down from Jerusalem to Jericho would be well known from the people in the region, something they would have had to have traversed on a regular basis or from time to time. It's about 17 miles downhill. Everybody walked everywhere. You needed CrossFit, you know, when you were out there exercising like that. Maybe riding on the back of a donkey, that helps, but that's not easy work either. Plenty of rocks and caves on this entire 17-mile stretch for thieves to ambush travelers and to hide out. So this is not something they wouldn't be aware of as a real risk. Jesus begins the parable by actually doubling down on fake religion. Do you note that? Do you, do you see this? He has a priest and a Levite are the first two characters, and they're not the heroes. They're Jewish. They fulfill the law. They've gone to the temple. There's all kinds of speculation about what this really is trying to say, but I would say this. It's clear that Christ is saying just because you got things spiritually right doesn't mean you have that you're a good neighbor. And probably reveals that you don't have a right relationship with God because you don't know his compassion. The priest and the Levite are returning from working in the temple. They would have been quoting the Shema in the morning and the Shema at night before going to bed. And both of them ignored this man. Both of them walked by on the other side. And then verse 33, which would have been the jaw-drop shocker, right? The one that it's... It, it, it's the big reveal. He starts this way. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. There's at least four distinctions here of a kingdom neighbor. I don't know if they were on the screen yet, sorry. Four distinctions of a kingdom neighbor that, that, that Christ pulls out of this portion, and he does it by demonstrating this in the Samaritan. The first is that he sees the person. He actually sees the person. Have you ever done that exercise? Have you ever done that and practically just stopped and slowed down? We have such a busy life, right? We don't see people. I don't. Man, I'll just, I'll throw my own guilt. I can be quick and fast and moving. I don't see the need. And I say the Imago Dei because, in fact, that's the image of God in people. He's created, in Genesis it says he created men and women in his image. That they have value and worth. And it says here that, that the Samaritan saw the man and he had compassion. He had empathy. He recognized the need this man had and he immediately came to meet it. And throughout the Gospels, Christ has said over and over again to see the people and have compassion. To recognize their need. Look, we're all created in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth. And as believers, if you have Christ in you, we don't see people according to the flesh anymore. We don't see people according to the flesh. Do you see the image of God in people? Do you recognize that there are many ways that we interact superficially with people without compassion? That we don't acknowledge that while Christ came to inaugurate the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness is truly still in this world. And that we combat that. Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And that that man or woman standing before you is a child of God and that he is created in his image. And that we need to love and demonstrate compassion for them in the same way the Samaritan does for this, this man. When we only absorb the hot takes of our favorite commentator who belittle people or talk about them in ways that are superficial, we don't see the image of God in others. A kingdom neighbor sees the Imago Dei. B, or two, sorry, I've got B here. I totally messed that up. But two. There seems to be uh, no qualifications. No qualifications for compassion. Underneath the lawyer's question is this. Understand when he asks who's my neighbor, he's really asking or assuming that there's some people that don't deserve his compassion. He's assuming that there are some people that don't fit that bill. And Jesus used the Samaritan intentionally. Intentionally. Now, the, the Jew might have used this as an excuse because the Samaritans would have built their own temples. They would have worshipped even outside God's potentially or worshipped God differently. In the Old Testament and throughout, God talks about the fact that we are not supposed to be intermingling or bringing in other nations who worship other gods, right? And so they saw that and said, okay, well, they are used to be, Samaritans are half-breeds, if you will. This is how they were treated. Because Assyrians came in from the north, raided and captured and actually intermarried with them. Therefore, their pure Jewishness was not there anymore. Okay? Understand that context. The portion of this that, that they're doing wrongly, the same way James and John tried to call down fire on the Samaritans, the thing they're doing wrong here is that they're thinking because we're not supposed to bring in those who worship other gods, that we're also not supposed to have compassion to them, that we're also not supposed to love them. 
But, Paul, but God himself told Abraham when he called him out of the nations to be his people, he said, through you, all nations would be blessed. How can you bless the nations and curse them? And so the Samaritans were considered hated half-breeds. They built their temples. And the love was not lost between the two of them, by the way. The, uh, the Samaritans would actually come in and throw pig carcasses, which were considered unclean, into Jewish temples. Okay? It's like a really bad, like, sibling rivalry thing going on here. The Jews would raid and destroy the Samaritans' temples. So they were going back and forth. But in this particular case, we see the Samaritan as the one who's the hero. Jesus says, take all that other stuff you're concerned about. Who's the neighbor here? Look at the guy who does the right thing. It's also demonstrated that the Samaritan doesn't have, there's no apparent earning of the Samaritan's compassion. It's an unearned compassion. How did this man lying on the side of the road near death, naked, beaten, bruised, do anything to earn compassion? Nothing. He didn't markedly do anything to warrant the mercy of the Samaritan. It's also regardless of this guy's identity. The Samaritan would have had no idea. When, you, when you're beat to the point that you're almost dead and you're stripped naked, you don't look like anything. Especially nothing of importance. I mean, he might not have known this guy's a Jewish, Samaritan, Assyrian. He might not have a clue this guy is. Also, regardless of status, you don't look very wealthy or powerful in that condition. He didn't look like he has anything to offer. Rich man, poor man, political leader, a slave, you kind of all look the same when you're stripped down and beaten. He didn't check any kind of political party affiliation. He didn't check anything about this man. He just showed compassion without qualification. He didn't look for evidence of worthiness. He saw the need and he met it. When someone's fallen into the ditch, it's not our place to ask how they got there. We help them out of the ditch. That's a quote from uh, Dr. Sproul as well. Every believer in this room has a story of where you were when God met you with his grace. And who among you had any qualifications before God demonstrated his mercy and compassion on you? We show compassion and mercy to our neighbor because God has been so merciful on us. We show compassion and mercy to our neighbor because God has been so merciful to us when none of us could do anything to earn it. How can we qualify who we show compassion when God has been so compassionate to us? A kingdom neighbor demands no qualification. We also see that he's very generous to meet the needs of the man. He's generous with his possessions. It says he poured out his oil and wine. He tore his clothes for bandages. He carried him on his donkey for miles. He paid for his care at the stay at the inn. It's estimated that I've seen estimations on the amount of money he gave that was anywhere from three weeks to two months worth of care that he would have paid for, for this guy. He offered additionally to the innkeeper at the end, he says, if any more expenses are incurred, I'll pay for it at the end, just take care of it. He was generous with his time. He sidetracked his trip. Who knows where he's going? He's on a 17-mile trek. And he carried this man, which probably took much longer than just riding the donkey himself. He stayed overnight with this man. Why do we hold so tightly to our time and possessions? Why? 
As Christians, who are we? We are God's stewards. We're managing the times, gifts, and possessions he grants. There's nothing that we have that wasn't received from God. Nothing. In Matthew 6, Jesus encourages us not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Something else to note in this context, it's not explicit here, but he seemed to almost plan for generosity. You know, we, we have these hurried lives that we don't have space to be compassionate for others. And we don't intentionally make that space. He made space in his calendar. He, made, he, he had money in his budget that was available to be able to do this without bankrupting him. It's not about being in high demand. It's about lacking discipline to plan. A kingdom neighbor is generous with their possessions and generous with their time, and they plan ahead to show that kind of generosity when the need is evident, to generous to neighbors in need. Fourthly, we see he expects nothing in return. The Samaritan had no way of expecting repayment. He had no idea who this guy was. In fact, it's likely the man would not be able to repay at all. He wasn't going to get a title. He wasn't getting notoriety or anything out of the deal. It wasn't going to be published in the local newspaper about what this guy did. Luke 14, 13 through 14, on the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The Samaritan gave generously to someone who could not offer anything in return. And it's often easier for us to give generously when we expect something in return. There's something to be gained. Are you concerned about who knows about your good deeds? I mean, I remember when I applied to college, they required community service. But come on, I did it again to college. And I put it on my transcript. It's a good thing, but I did it to get something. Do you help people when it helps you, only when it helps you? A kingdom neighbor shows compassion and expects nothing. And here's a third movement, the third thing to pull out of here that Christ is demonstrating, and that's the decree of the compassionate king, the command that comes at the end. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? This is how he, he finishes up in verse 36. He asked after the story, he then points it back to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this man who fell into the hand of the robbers? Jesus completes his parable and asks the final question, who proved to be a neighbor? I'll note that wasn't the original question. He said, who is my neighbor? And he said, who proved to be a neighbor? It's not who's my neighbor, it's how do I be a neighbor? The one, the answer he gives is in verse 37, the one who showed mercy to him. Note, he couldn't even say the Samaritan. That the one of the one that was showed mercy. So Jesus finally concludes this. He says, you go and you do likewise. This isn't Jesus saying, go and do better. So that you can now have eternal life. This is uh, Jesus meeting him where he is. He's giving him the same kind of plea he made to the Pharisees in Matthew 9. When he says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. The lawyer wanted to justify himself before men, but Jesus desires to justify us before God. And no amount of sacrifice could ever earn God's mercy. 
let's take our simplistic ideas of what it means to love our neighbor that are easy for us to live out and blow up those categories of what it means to be a neighbor. Instead of the kind of easy neighboring that we can feel good about ourselves, Jesus shows us the kind of kingdom neighbor that we can never fulfill in our flesh. I, I began this and talked about the fact that it's, as an evangelistic ploy, this is what you're supposed to be, you can't be it, you need Jesus. The truth is I said yes to that because in fact we cannot live in this kind of a compassionate heart every day, all day, without God's Spirit in us. Unless Christ lives in and through you, we can't, we can't fulfill this. You know, it wasn't ultimately Jesus' point here, but in the end, he is the ultimate good Samaritan. He is the one who came along at the very right time to bind our wounds and to heal us. Except we weren't dying, we were dead in our sin. And we weren't jumped by thieves, we were dead in our sin by our own guilt. And we weren't just strangers he found on the street, we were actively God's enemies. And Jesus didn't just clean up our physical wounds, he took on our sin and our guilt so that we might be pure and righteous before God. And Jesus doesn't just offer a ride to drop us off at an inn. He brings us into the household of God and we become family. Jesus Christ sees you. He knows your guilt. He knows your shame. And he is compassionate. He's compassionate. He wants to bind your wounds and take your guilt and bring you into his family. And if you don't know him and know his compassion, don't leave here today. Don't leave here today without coming to me or Aaron or anybody else who might show you the love and compassion of Christ. Believers, the call from Christ is obedience. It's obedience because he has enabled us to live this way. You just don't go and do better to justify yourself. We could be this kind of kingdom neighbor, and we can't do it in our own strength, but because we are citizens of the kingdom of God, you don't live in your own strength. God has enabled us to live this way. You're not defined by your service before men. Your, identified is, your identity is in your Savior before God. Christ is our Savior, and according to 1 Peter 2.21, Christ is our example. He says, you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, that he's enabled you to follow after and that we can proceed, and we can be this kind of compassionate neighbor. Your Savior washed feet. He died for you. The servant is not greater than the master. We love because he first loved us. Our king humbled himself to the point of death so that we might live. Our God is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And you can never out-neighbor our God. Can't do it. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we've been given life to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. And as you go from here today, just pray that God might open your eyes to see the needs of people around you because they bear the Imago Dei. You can show unqualified compassion and mercy because God lavished his compassion and mercy on us. Be generous with your time and your possessions because what do you have that was not given to you? And even if the world gives you nothing in return, if your name is not celebrated, no memorials ever raised in your honor, if your name doesn't show up on a building at your old alma mater, 
rejoice that your name's written in heaven. Believers, go and do likewise. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the abundance of love. You have demonstrated your compassion for us as sinners, fallen by the wayside, slaves in bondage to the kingdom of darkness. But God, you in your great love and compassion have sent Christ that he might rescue us and demonstrate your love for 